Merry Christmas. <laughs> I'm surprised anyone came back after last week, to be honest. That was a really hard passage, and this one doesn't get much easier, but I'm going to just begin with, I got to be really honest, um, it's, it's hard to teach this book because it shows us where maybe we kind of buy more into culture than we do into what the Word actually says. Uh, there was a takeaway first service that really spoke to me. Uh, one of the gentlemen in the church said, one of the reasons that the teaching's hard is because we don't want to obey it. And so today, we're going to have an opportunity to be confronted with the Word of God again. And I say all of that to say, we're not going to, I wanted to get through many more verses than what Ruth just read, but we're not going to today. But we're going to take this bite-sized opportunity to look at what does he say and what does he specifically say about false teachers. What's interesting is, in, we studied last week verses 3 through 7, and it talked about what these false teachers eventually have happened to them. There is a judgment that comes to them, but the judgment comes not because of the sin that they commit, but the thing that happens before that, which is the unbelief, and the sin that we commit is because we don't believe God at His Word. And so today we're going to study what these false teachers, these wolves in sheep's clothing within the church actually do to themselves and to others, and how we can see how we can really know the truth from His Word, and how important it is for us to pay attention in the church. I want it to be known this is a hard book specifically just in general, but also specifically because it's December. This is normally the month where we're talking about Advent, we're talking about the Savior's coming, and there's a bunch of Christmas songs, and even though we're going to sing some of those, really we wanted to make sure that the truth of the Word was the thing that penetrated our hearts this month. It's so imperative and important for us as a community to be saturated in the Word of God rather than subjective feelings and emotions. And this season usually makes us think of time off. And any of us going to get time off from our jobs? At least one day, if not a few, we start to think of material gifts. We start to think of our family. And if we're at all religious, we're thinking about the coming of baby Jesus in a manger. We're thinking about these Christmas songs that seem to make this glorious event a little more about tradition than a reminder of the fact that God, in His great and pleasing will, decided to not leave us on our own, but the Creator and Sustainer of all things has come to His creation, was born of a virgin, grew in stature, and lived the perfect life that wasn't just an example for us to follow, but was the opportunity for a perfect sacrifice to be substituted for you and for me, because we all have sinned, and yet Jesus didn't sin. And yet He died on a cross, a sinner's death, but three days later, He physically and victoriously rose from the dead, and He showed Himself to hundreds of people over 40 days, ascended back to heaven where He currently resides, and one day when none of us expect, He's coming back in all His glory. And we, as His followers, those who have trusted Jesus Christ, don't point to something that we've done, but point to Jesus Christ as our sole means of justification. We are expectant of the fact that He's coming back. God sent His Spirit to reside in those of us who would trust Jesus as Lord. And the Holy Spirit would seal us, those of us who are God's people, and lead us and guide us in obeying and applying God's Word as we grow more into the likeness of Jesus. So why do I share this? 
Why do I talk about this at the beginning of the sermon? Because what Jude is writing about to the early church is to tell them to contend against people that were perversing what I just said. The people that had infiltrated the community of believers within the church, but they were false teachers who were trying to either mislead people from what I just said or lower the significance of who Jesus is. And they will attempt to perverse and misguide the flock of Jesus Christ through their words, through their actions and examples. So today we're going to see how Jude exposes them based on what they do and what they're like. We believe the Bible here at COV. We believe it from cover to cover as it was originally written. We have transcribed Bible that we have in NIV that is the one that we use. But as it was originally written, we believe it. We believe the truth and the understanding of who God is via the Bible. We don't worship the book and its pages, but we worship the author and the subject of this book, who is Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus actually is speaking to the Pharisees earlier in John, in John chapter 5, and he has some pretty profound words for them, but also for us today. Here's what he says in John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus says to these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So I begin with this because today we're going to talk about these false teachers, these people who do come into the church of Jesus Christ and attempt to persuade people away from the truth and person of Jesus and attempt to make him more culturally relevant, more palatable, or really just pat him on his head rather than treat him as the God of the Word who lived the life that we couldn't, died the death we should have, resurrected from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father until he comes back to be in all his glory and judge the earth. Any church that exists to make much of Jesus will experience wolves. Did you guys know that? Any church that makes it about Jesus is going to experience wolves. They will experience false teachers, and often those attacks will not be noticed within the church of God. And over time, it's going to create dissension, distraction, and decay that will make the church more and more ineffective for the furthering of the gospel message and Christ-likeness amongst God's people. So I want us to be aware today that this takes place 2,000 years after these words were written and circulated around the early church. This is still happening today. And we, like them, must contend for the truth of God found in the person and work of Christ, documented in the Word of God, which became flesh and walked among us. You want to know why the Word speaks to you? Because the Word knows you, because He became flesh. Verse 8, here we go. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority. They heap abuse on celestial beings. In the very same way, last week we studied what happens to those who are led by their unbelief and unrepentant hearts. And Jude says in the same way, making a connection is that those who are false teachers who have reaped condemnation onto themselves, they are dreamers. I, listen, I want to hear God's voice, don't you? Like, I want to hear God's voice. I want to hear His voice above all other voices. And guess where we hear His voice? Through the Scriptures through his word. So if you get a premonition, you have a dream, you get an impression, or you hear an audible voice that contradicts scripture, here's what I can guarantee. It's not from God. It's not from God. 
And now we have people within the church that Jude's speaking about that want to perverse what God has said and continuously says. What God says, and I want you to hear this, what God says is more important than what you feel or what you think. What God says is more important than what you feel or what you think. Remember who Jude is talking to. He's speaking of the false teachers who perverse the grace and say, it doesn't matter how you live. Because Jesus died for your sins, and yet Scripture says that we ought to not take grace for granted. Because those who truly receive it, they cannot take it for granted. Why? Because they realize that they've been saved by something they didn't do themselves. Because they are grateful for the gift of right standing before a holy and perfect God. And even though they did nothing to make themselves desirable, God in his mercy and grace decided to draw us, those of us who have trusted Jesus, to himself. So here's the literal, likewise these dreamers is probably the proper translation as Jude is speaking. And dreamers want to use some subjective experience to say that they are hearing directly from God in their dreams. And honestly, this is a way to give credit to God for what they think. But it is a way to bring an illusion of authority to what we say. I'm not saying that God cannot communicate through a dream. He can't bring something to mind as a reminder, to point something out in Scripture that we've skipped or maybe we've ignored or forgotten, but to come up with new revelation or to speak on God's behalf without Scripture within the context of which it's written and more Scripture to back up your stance, it's dangerous for you and it's dangerous for your hearers. Honestly, it's pretty arrogant to believe that God speaks to you in a way that he doesn't speak to anyone else. And maybe, or maybe, it's a misunderstanding of the communication that we see in Scripture. God spoke to me is something that I hear a lot. And I always want to say, what does he sound like? Morgan Freeman? Did, did he speak in English? Did he speak in Aramaic? Listen, God can communicate to us but he is never in conflict with his word that was written by God, the Holy Spirit. He's never in conflict with that. So I've had experiences where I believe that there was something that was leading me towards something, but I had to check back to Scripture to make sure that my subjective experience was true about God's word. In Revelation chapter 22, the Apostle John writes this towards the end of the Bible. He says, I warn everyone who hears these words of prophecy of the scroll, if anyone adds to anything, adds anything to them, God will add to that person plagues described in the scroll. And if anyone takes words away from the scroll or prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in the scroll. Wow. This is written by the Apostle John at the end of the final letter that's included in Scripture, and it warns those who handle Scripture and speak of Scripture. And God says a similar thing in the Old Testament, because Scripture interprets Scripture. Do not add what I command you, do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. And then in Proverbs 30, verse 6, do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. So let me just say it this way. If you add to Scripture unintentionally, there is grace for that. I, I've done it. I've done it. We've all done it to some extent. In fact, a good friend of mine said, man, last week when you talked about the fact that God doesn't give, God, I always thought that God would never give me anything we can't handle, but then you pointed out in 1 Corinthians that that's not what he says. 
See, we add to the Scripture all the time, and we want to make sure that the God that we're worshiping, the God that we're praising, is the God from His Word because we don't want to worship a God we've made up in our, our own likeness. But if you on purpose and through your pride want to be right so you add to Scripture and you want to lead people away, God has judgment in store for you. Merry Christmas. And Judah's making known that these false teachers, they pollute their own bodies. They do not treat the gift of their body, which is a temple for the Holy Spirit. They defile their flesh. They choose the pleasures of the flesh over the truth of God's word. They do not obey authority, especially of God's, and they heap abuse. They slander verbally and speak evil against the celestial and the glory of God. See, let me give you a definition. There's this word called apostasy, and apostasy is to be exposed to the gospel, to say that you're in, to trust Jesus in your mind, and then reject what you've been taught. That's apostasy, and that's what many of these false teachers were doing. In the same way, those false teachers, the people that have experienced the gospel, have heard about it, but have rejected it, we're supposed to contend against them. So what do they do? Well, they base their actions, or they base their belief of God on their dreams, and they allow their dreams to supersede what God says in His Word. There are three things that an apostate false teacher are. He says, defile the flesh, that's immoral. They're immoral. They reject authority, they're insubordinate, and they heap abuse on celestial beings. They're irreverent. Now, when you hear these three things, I don't want you to go, oh man, I'm immoral, I am too. I'm insubordinate. You're absolutely right. I am too. There are times where I'm totally irreverent. I am too. But this, isn't, this doesn't define who I am. You know what defines who I am? Jesus Christ and his work on the cross through the death and resurrection. That's what defines who I am. In Jeremiah chapter 23, the prophet says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets, he's talking about prophets that are making up stuff, are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. And then look at what God says through Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, and if, look, if that sign or wonder spoken of takes place and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, they perverse who God is in the scriptures, the gods you have not known, let us worship him. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. We're going to do some work there. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere, keep his commands and obey him, serve him, and hold fast to him. So why would the Lord test you? Have you ever thought about this? Because in Scripture, it actually talks a lot about testing. Why would the Lord test you? Does he not know what you're going to do? Does he not know that you have the faith to trust him in some scenario? Does he have to test you so he'll know? No. He tests you because you don't know if you will actually obey him until you do it. You can't say, oh, I obey Jesus, I do what he says, but then you just have a consistent example of you never doing it. You can't say that you obey him. So why does he test us? So we'll have the opportunity to grow. So we'll have the opportunity to see if we actually put into practice what he does. So here we go, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 19 through 21, popular passage. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. And he says, do not quench 
the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, Numa, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. So look at that first. Do not quench the Spirit. It means to attempt to, attempt to put out a fire. Many, many commentators believe that this doesn't just happen through disobedience to God, but it also happens through ungratefulness for the gifts that God has given you. Let's be real. Some of us are ungrateful. Some of us are unwilling to listen to what God says, and we're unwilling to be grateful for the fact that all of us are saved by grace through faith. If we've trusted Christ, we are saved by that, but some of us squelch the Spirit by just being unwilling to be grateful for that. Many assume prophecies means telling of the future. But this was pointing out the truth of God in His Word. It's similar to 1 Corinthians 14. This had more to do with the interpretation of what God meant in His Word. When we are prophetic, I don't think any of us are a prophet, but when we are prophetic, we are interpreting God's will correctly from God's Word. That's why often when we listen to people online or maybe you hear a sermon here and you're like, oh my gosh, that, the Word was talking directly to me. It's because the Word knows you, because the Word became flesh. And when we teach the Word of God, when it's truly taught within the interpretation in line with God's will, it's prophetic. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1, 2, through. One through two says, the spirit, spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith. Can you believe this? They will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Wow. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. I got to be honest, this passage scares me because I know what a hypocrite I am. I know that I am a liar. It's not just that I lie, I'm a liar. I don't necessarily lie like I once did when I was younger, but I know there are times that I catch myself wanting to exaggerate, and guess what? That's lying too. Just called you all out. Jonathan Edwards, we've said it before, he uses this quote, this theologian says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's all we've done when it comes to our salvation. So here's my point. When we are secure in Christ, we can admit to and confess our continued sin. When we are secure in Christ, when we are in the truth, we know that we are not justified by how good we are. It gives us security in Him that we can admit our shortcomings and point to the one who did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Uh, I hear from some of you pretty often, actually, that I'm pretty transparent, and that might be true, but what I want to model is not that I'm just transparent. What I want to model is that when we are in Christ, we do not have to exalt ourselves. I'm trying not to look at anyone that I want to say that directly to. When we are in Christ, we do not have to exalt ourselves so people think that we're good enough to be saved because no one is good enough, and that's the point. Christ came for sinners like you and I. 2 Peter chapter 2, we, we talked about the first week that 2 Peter and the book of Jude seem to almost be written in tandem, or Jude is an answer to 2 Peter. 2 Peter talks about the false teachers that are coming. Jude's talking about the false teachers that have shown up. 
And he says, but there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. See, false teachers introduce destructive heresies. Now, here's the thing. I read things like this, and I got to be real. I struggle because this past week I had to go and, Lord, I don't want to be a false teacher. I don't want to lead your people away. I had to check my heart. I know I'm immoral. I know the things and urges that I want to do. I had to check my heart, and I was reminded once again that false teachers never, ever examine themselves. In fact, 2 Corinthians tells us to examine ourselves. And those who introduce destructive heresies, they attempt to bring some new revelation New revelation, some new thing that only they can understand that you ought to believe. Okay, I'll name names. Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon. It was his revelation. He figured it out. Here's the thing. That is a false teaching from the depths of hell. And so we ought to look to see, are the things that we're studying, are the things that we're believing, are they orthodox? I didn't say Greek orthodox, I said are they orthodox? What that means is, have they been universally accepted among the Protestant church for centuries? Or is it a new type of interpretation that is an adoption because of culture? Some of you listen to podcasts. Some of you listen to sermons online and teachings from other communicators around the world. And unless they're a false teacher, unless they're teaching you bad things, I'm good with that. I listen to other teachers. I'll name names. I listen to Tommy Nelson from Denton Bible Church in Texas. I listen to Alistair Begg from Ohio. I listen to Kevin DeYoung. I listen to John Piper and his nasally voice. I listen to Matt Chandler. But here's the thing about when we listen to other teachers. They are preaching a sermon either for their people Or when it's a podcast, often they're preaching it for a general type of people. So what can never be replaced in the community of believers is that when we write sermons on Sundays, we want to teach our people the Bible, not teach the Bible to people. Do you guys see the difference? We want to teach our people the Bible. I care about you guys. I'm just going to name names now. Christine, I've been your pastor for years, and I've watched God work in you. I've watched you put into practice God's word. And that doesn't mean that you were perfect coming in. It doesn't mean you're perfect now, but I've watched God do work in you. Calvin, I've seen the Lord move in your heart. I've seen you go, man, I need to do this. I don't just need to know what it says. I need to put it into practice. These are things that God's people do. And I say this because none of us are perfect, but I want us to understand that when we listen to other teaching, we have to listen understanding the context in which it's taught. With that, I want to show you a video of a preacher named Matt Chandler, and many of us probably listen to him. We probably pay attention to how he begins, uh, or we pay attention to his teaching, but I want you to hear how he begins his sermons, all right? So would you guys play this video? Hi, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for um, either streaming or downloading this sermon. I I pray that every week you're challenged by the Word of God. You're you're built up in His love. The Word of God kind of gets in you and rearranges things and draws your affections up to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, I want to remind you, as always, uh, that although, man, I'm I'm so glad that that you want to hear what what I've got to say this week or we've got to say this week, this is never meant 
to substitute God's good plan for you to be in a community of faith where the word of God is preached and proclaimed. And so I want to encourage you to use this like a vitamin, not like a meal, uh, so that you belong to a community of faith where you're being shaped by being known, by using your gifts, by receiving the word, by partaking in the sacraments, and by walking faithfully in accordance with the scriptures. And then this is something, man, you're listening to while you run or you're, you're watching when you have a few minutes. And so just want to make sure we, we frame what this is and what it should not be. I appreciate that video because he's making known that this, when you listen online, that's not supposed to be in substitution of a church body and a communication. It's a vitamin, not a meal. And that meal comes when you are in an accountable community that you can ask questions to about the teaching. You can go deeper in the teaching in a community group. The truth is we think about you when we're preaching. We think about you when we're writing the sermons based on the Word of God because we want to preach, we want to teach our people the Word of God. That's what Matt says. What Matt says that he does when it comes to podcasts and YouTube videos, they cannot be a replacement for being accountable to the church body. Verse 9. But even the archangel Michael. Wow, that was only one verse? Oh, great. Wow. All right. But even the archangel Michael when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. All right, we got to do a little bit of work here, because Jude quotes outside of Scripture. See, Michael, the archangel, he's biblical. He is the chief, chief angel of God who watches over Israel. We read about him in the book of Daniel, chapter 10. But the body of Moses, which is what some people talk about he's quoting, it's, it's actually a writing, is one that no longer exists today. But tradition has it that the assumption was that Satan wanted to dig up Moses' body after he died and his body was buried on a mountain. We get that from Deuteronomy, where no one was supposed to be able to find it. But this tradition has it that the accuser, Satan, wanted to go dig up the body and possibly use it as an idol for people to worship, to give them something else to worship other than the one true God. So does this mean that this this writing known as the body of Moses is scripture? Not at all. Paul quotes outside sources in Acts 17 when he's explaining the gospel to a group of people to use it as a bridge for the hearers to understand. But the point Jude was making by using this resource was not that it was inspired scripture, but it was to make the point that Michael the archangel did not use any of his own authority, but pointed back to the Lord and his authority when it came to the, the most beautiful angel known as Satan. Even the most authoritative angel didn't try to take on a fallen angel and Satan through his own authority, but pointed to God, who all authority in heaven and earth has been given to, and said, the Lord rebuke you. See, it's all his. He's the author of all things. And he pointed to the Lord and said, the Lord rebuke you. Verse 10. Yet these people, these false teachers, they slander whatever they do not understand, the very things they, they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. So speaking of these false teachers, their apostasy is outed as they speak about things they do not understand. So let me be clear. Someone who does not have the Holy Spirit, someone who has not been redeemed by God, does not have the Spirit residing in them, cannot speak about the depths of grace and beauty of what regeneration is. 
because they have not experienced it themselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul points this out. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. You know anyone that thinks your Christianity is foolish? And cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. These are people that don't have the Spirit. And the instincts of the unredeemed, they're not holy. They're either legalistic or they're carnal which both lead to death, but the spiritually dead cannot understand spiritually alive things. Left to our own devices, we're all carnal. Did you guys know that? We all have urges and lusts that lead to death because they are not holy, and God must intervene for us to do anything that is holy in us. Anything that is good and pleasing, he must give us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to lead us. He must give us his word to guide us. It is such a bummer when someone hears the truth of God. We think they understand the beauty of grace, and then they take it to an extreme where they live however they want, or they become so conceited and believe that everyone should be as holy as they are and should have the theology that they have. But the theme of any and everything we do Everything and anything that we do that is good and pleasing to God is because God gave us the ability, he gave us the motivation, he gave us the desire, and he gave us the belief to do so. So here we go. Uh, Now it's going to get harsh. (laughs) Verse 11, woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Woe to them. This is not woe from Joey Lawrence. This is not woe from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. That's for me. I don't expect all of you to know what I'm talking about. This is woe to these false teachers. This word means horror. Horror will be brought upon them. This is a judgment, and he uses these three examples of what's going to happen to them because it's happened to others. I'd I'd really quick like you to notice something. He doesn't, as he's talking about these false teachers, as he places this judgment upon them, these false teachers, these apostates who are trying to mislead God's people, Jew doesn't tell his hearers to pray for their souls. What? Why not? He doesn't tell them to try to engage them. In fact, he passes judgment and tells his hearers that they ought to contend against them. Look at what Paul says to the church in Corinth. It has immoral individuals within the church. Uh, One friend once said, we all want to be the, the early church in Acts, and we all end up being the church in Corinth, and isn't that true? But he points out these immoral individuals who have proven their unbelief while being in the church, but claiming to be in the faith. This is the problem. Apostates aren't just someone who has bad teaching. Apostates are someone who claims they're good and tries to mislead other people. Here's what it says, 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, ew, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out your fellowship, the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, lowercase s, as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit 
lowercase s, may be saved on the day of the Lord. Why would kicking this person out of the church community save their spirit on the day of the Lord? Because if we continue to live how we want within the church and no one corrects, rebukes, or contends against us, we'll believe that we're good. We may believe that we're following the true Jesus, even though based on our actions, we prove that he isn't the Lord of our lives. This is why we don't baptize babies at COV. Let me, let me unpack that. There's a reason we don't baptize babies at COV. We don't even baptize babies as dedication because I have known people time and time again who think because they were baptized as a baby before a commitment to Jesus Christ that they and God are good, not because of Christ, but because of some external work that was done to them by someone else. Baptism doesn't save you. Only Jesus saves you, but far too many people get it twisted and look at baptism as all that is, is expected for someone to be saved. We just witnessed four baptisms. I met with those people. I talked with them. I watched their lives over many years in some of the cases and a few months for a few of the other people, and my prayer for them and my hope going into their baptism was that they would not think they're justified because of what happened on Sunday, December 15th, 2019, but because of what God did in their lives before the foundation of the earth was created, because of who God is, what God has done for them. They are not justified by who they are. They're justified by who God has made them in Christ Jesus. So, Back to these people that Jude is telling us to contend against. These disobedient people in the church of Corinth are similar to the false teachers that Jude is speaking about. And when we passively allow false teachers and people who want to live however they like to continue in the church, it hurts them because they may never really come in contact with the authoritative God of the Word, and because it spreads like a disease amongst the body, because we are influenced primarily by whose company we keep and whose teaching we listen to. 1 Corinthians 15, 33 through 34, Paul says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So when you spend time with people, do you influence them more or do they influence you more? Let's look at Paul's conclusion in this matter. He continues in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. He's kind of being funny here. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who underline this part, claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church, Paul says. But here's the verse where we totally get, don't judge or thou shalt be judged, twisted. Are you not to judge those inside? It was rhetorical, yes. We measure how people are doing inside. And you may take this as condemnation. Oh, well, he's talking about me. I, I looked at this online. I did this. I was really mean to this person on the road. Da, da, da. Guess what? There's grace for that. But if you claim that you're in Christ, trust Christ. Confess your sin. Admit that you are messed up and tore up from the floor up because you need Jesus Christ to be the one who changes you. So Paul says, it's not like we don't spend time with anyone who is sinful. That's the whole world. But what Paul points out 
is those who claim to have been redeemed by grace ought to look different than the world. And if someone claims to be a Christian but acts however they want, you cut ties because they may lead you and others astray from the real Jesus. Jude makes the point using these three examples that false teachers, here's what they are. They're motivated by pride, greed, and defiance. Pride, greed, and defiance. Um, I've been there. I'm probably still there, and I'm too prideful to admit it. Jesus uses words when it comes to, how do you handle sin in the church? We've talked about this before, but this applies to what we're talking about. What do you do when you see someone just getting off the reservation? They're unwilling to listen to what God has to say, and they're in your church community. What do you do? Do you just make the pastor deal with it? No. Jesus says in Matthew 18 to believers, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. It's quiet. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, hear me. I think a lot of people think this doesn't work. And if your assumption is that every person that you try Matthew 18 with is going to be restored, you're right. It doesn't work. But that's not the point of it. The point of it is to have you care about the person enough to actually go and talk to someone and say, hey, I've noticed that this is happening. I've noticed that you're doing this. I'm noticing that you're making it about you. Can we talk about this? So let me be really transparent. I don't want you to think like I'm talking at you. I'm preaching to myself here. If you see me, teacher of God's word, who is part of your church community, if you see me using my ministry to influence for gain or authority or power or influence, or I seem to be uh, trying to do what I'm doing for monetary gains, or, and you notice that I'm unwilling to submit to the authority to the word of God and the elders that are placed above me, call me out. Talk to me. And if you're afraid to talk to me, come and talk to one of the elders, and maybe both of you come and talk to me. But if we are going to be the church of the living God, we can't allow false teaching to come in, even though it's probably already here. We need to defend and contend against it, and I don't want any of you to think that I'm above sinning. I am as sinful as anyone in this room, if not worse. One of the benefits of knowing many of the other pastors in the Bay Area, like I do, is that when someone starts to come to this church from another church, I can quickly send a text and go, hey, uh, everything cool with this person? You guys didn't know I could do that, did you? <laughs> oh, I have. Because we don't want someone who's in a church that just doesn't like something about the church or has sinned in some way to just run to another church. We want them to have to deal with the sin because guess what? You're going to bring that in here. And so, this is what we do. I am very honest that I am very reverent towards God. I'm very reverent towards the responsibility that I have to preach the truth and to care for the sheep. That's one of the reasons we don't just let random people come preach. That's why we don't just let anyone lead a Bible study. We want to train and equip people and make sure that the people that are teaching the Word of God are teaching it within the context in which it's said, based on Scripture, interpreting Scripture, not just emotions and feelings. Because false teaching isn't just a possibility, it's inevitable that people would bring false teaching into the church if you're preaching about Jesus. So one more time, verse 11, woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. 
Jude makes known the severest judgment will be given to those who distort and pervert the truth, and he used the judgment upon Cain as an example. See, Cain was the first child that we know in Scripture that was born naturally through a husband and a wife, and Cain had a brother named Abel, and both of them brought an offering to God, and God looked favorably upon Abel's offering and did not look the same way upon Cain's offering, and Cain became jealous and murdered his brother Abel. Starting in Numbers chapter 22, we see that Balaam devised a plan for Balak, the king of Moab, to entice Israel into a compromising situation with idolatry and immorality, which would bring God's own judgment on his people. Korah, plus 250 other Jewish leaders, rejected the God-appointed leadership of both Moses and Aaron in an attempt to impose his will upon God and, and the people in Numbers 16. And all of these examples fell under God's judgment and destruction, and Jude made clear that this is what happens to those who distort the truth as false teachers within the church. In verses 5 through 7, Jude used three examples of the judgment that was brought upon those who were apostate. They were false teachers, and they abandoned the faith that they had access to and didn't really believe God. Verses 8 through 10, he uses three characteristics of those who are apostate. And then in verse 11, Jude uses the three apostate influences that false teachers exude, pride, greed, and defiance. So, Becky, I want to I go a little bit farther towards the last slide the second to last slide, I believe, or maybe the last one, it's Luke 18, Luke 18, 9 through 14. And this past week, I was meeting with a few men that I get to invest in every other week, and we came together and we're studying the Bible, and one of the men in the group uh, during prayer prayed this, and I was encouraged by it, but let me, let me explain what he said. He prayed, Lord, thank you that I'm part of a church community where we preach the Bible, And some of you might say amen. I know I said amen, but in that exact same moment as I said amen, I realized that, man, there is pride in me because I want to, well, I'm doing this better than someone else. I won't say, well, I just did, but I won't generally say that out loud, but I start to think that I'm doing it better than someone else, and then this parable always comes to mind. Here's what Jesus says. He starts in verse 9. He says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness... And look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I assume he said it that way, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Jesus continues. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I don't want to be a Christian, forget my pastoral role. I don't want to be a Christian that says, I'm glad I'm not like other Christians. I don't want to be a pastor who says, oh, I'm so glad I have good theology. I want to beat my chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all I am. Someone who was dead in their sin and God decided to intervene and make me alive in Christ. 
And my hope for you is that the crux of your narrative, when you look back at your entire life of following the Lord, I pray that your entire narrative would be that you were a sinner that God drew to himself to make alive in Christ, and you made much of Jesus as a saint of God. Not because you're good, but because he's good, and he gifted that to you. So let me, let me end with this. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Let me say something that's very direct and very clear. God loves you. God loves you. No, 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 no. Look at me. Look at me. God loves you. You're a sinner. God is good. You aren't. You will die. Jesus died and rose again. And because of his grace, I'm with him. Who are you with? The Jesus that you want to imagine or the Jesus that is the God of the word? Repent, friend. Trust Christ Jesus as your only means of right standing before God. Honestly, some of you guys don't know how to do that, and I'm not going to spend all my time just telling you how to repent, but some of you just need to have a conversation with somebody and talk to them and say, hey, I'm not really sure I'm trusting the real Jesus. There's, there's these little cards in front of you. You can fill one out. You can say, hey, I want to know more about Jesus. You can fill that out. We have a staff that would love to talk with you. We have elders that would love to sit down with you and spend time talking about who Jesus is. So fill out that card. If you really want to trust him, and maybe you haven't, we want to talk with you about, we watched four people that had committed their lives to Jesus. It wasn't on a whim. It wasn't emotional. We didn't just throw other clothes on them and say, hey, go get baptized. These were people that made an outward commitment to what they believed inwardly. And so don't, don't allow us to continue to preach the gospel and have it just harden your hearts if you haven't truly trusted him.